Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Morgan Lee Davies, and here is my co-host Gavia Baker-Whitelaw. Hello. So this week we're discussing Wong Kar Wai's masterpiece In the Mood for Love, starring Tony Leung and Maggie Chung as neighbors in 1960s Hong Kong who realize that their spouses are having an affair. So this is a Patreon request from Caitlin. Thank you so much, Caitlin, for this excuse to discuss one of the great masterpieces of world cinema. Um, this is one of the, you know, better films we have discussed on Overinvested or will discuss, I imagine. And this is really perfectly timed, kind of totally by accident, with the Criterion release of a box set of Wong Kar Wai's movies. So I have been seeing discussion about him kind of pop up on Twitter because people have been watching those films. A bunch of them are available on the Criterion channel. So um, I feel like this is just a really well-timed, you know, revisiting of a movie that is always in the conversation of movie people because it is so wonderful and influential. We have both seen this movie before and love it, but I hadn't seen it in a while and did not remember it that well. And I was really interesting. It was really interesting watching it again this weekend to prepare for this episode because I feel like I had since seeing it for the first time seen seen more movies that gave me more context for what it's kind of doing artistically but yeah just a pleasure to watch this movie obviously but you also have have seen this movie multiple times and love it so I will pass off to you briefly here. We have a lot of things to say about this movie but it's hard to know where to begin. Um, it's an absolutely gorgeous film. It's a romance but not like a straightforward romance where two people fall in love kind of story. It's about people sort of coming into contact and missing each other and there's this kind of overwhelming sense of nostalgia and the film is also very well known and widely praised for its use of colour and its fantastic cinematography and its music which we'll be talking about and you know it's it's a gorgeous period drama that draws from the director's kind of own life experiences and childhood in Hong Kong which I think you know a little bit about Morgan. Yes, we will start, as we often do, by giving some background context on the director. I didn't realize until I was doing some research after watching the movie sort of how much he was drawing on his own childhood memories in constructing this film, which I thought was really interesting. So he was born in Shanghai in 1958 and then moved to Hong Kong with his family when he was five. He was part of this sort of mass exodus of many people from China in this period and the sort of decades before and since to sort of escape communist China and specifically at the time when they left the cultural revolution was really beginning and so a lot of the sort of intelligentsia were getting out and there are characters in this movie including um Maggie Chung's landlady who are sort of from Shanghai and are now living in Hong Kong which is not a something that I picked up on while watching the movie because I can't tell between the different dialects. Like, I don't know any of these languages. But that's really the specific sort of subculture within Hong Kong that he's depicting in this movie, is these people who are basically expats from China who are living in Hong Kong. And I think one of the things that I found really interesting thinking about watching the movie this time was the sort of thematic and 
cultural stuff he's doing with Hong Kong as a location, which we'll talk a little bit more about later. But um, he then goes on to become a screenwriter in the 1980s of many films that I hadn't heard of so much because he's obviously more famous for the films that he also directed. His debut film is called As Tears Go By, which came out in 1988. And that also stars Maggie Chung and Andy Lau, who's very famous. And that was a big hit. And that was followed by Days of Being Wild, which is also set in the 1960s and is the first part of kind of like an unofficial trilogy that consists of that movie, this movie, and then 2046, which is kind of like an unofficial sequel to In the Mood for Love, which I really wanted to watch before doing this episode and is available on Amazon Prime, but the quality is like not watchable. Truly a nightmare. It's a gorgeous film. It's a lot weirder than this one. Um, The structure is kind of, it's several different kind of romances and to to use a very loose term of romance in kind of different settings, one of which invo- involves androids. I mean, I remember that movie coming out. That was sort of the first context I had for him, I think, although I didn't know very much about it at the time. But a lot of these movies were available, at least in the US, in kind of really bad digital form for a long time, which is why it was such a big deal that Criterion was restoring all of them. And the version of In the Mood for Love that I watched on the Criterion channel looked like perfect and gorgeous. So that was very exciting. But his big breakthrough internationally is a film that I'm sure many of our listeners have seen and certainly heard of, which is Chunking Express, which is the early 90s, also starring Tony Leung. Apparently was made in only six weeks, which is not how Wong Kar Wai works uh, now, which we will discuss. He takes a long time. But I guess that movie was like a, you know, burst of inspiration. And that was distributed by Miramax in the US. And I think was like, it was just a big deal internationally and a big hit in Hong Kong as well. And then he made two more movies after that, Fallen Angels and Happy Together, both of which I've heard are great and I have not seen. And then In the Mood for Love comes next and is like the high point of his career. Yeah, I mean, he's this titan of cinema. He's done quite a lot of other movies which are sort of not as acclaimed as this. And he's also done, you know, a relatively wide range of genres. Like he's done martial arts movies and historical dramas and present day dramas. You know, he's done a lot. Yes. And there's quite a lot of stylistic range as well. The only two that I've seen, it's really, I'm embarrassed to say I've only seen two of these movies, but I've seen Chunking Express and In the Mood for Love. And there are certainly sort of thematic or tonal things in those movies that you can tell that the same person is making them. There's a the romantic quality to them and the like longing for something that seems impossible, although they end quite differently. But stylistically, they're totally different. Um, Chunking Express takes place in the current day and there's a lot of handheld camera, which I think there is in most of his early movies. And it just feels like really kinetic and energetic, even though there is this kind of melancholy to it as well. All the characters feel very lonely and they're trying to find connection with people, which is also what In the Mood for Love is about on a very basic level. But again, stylistically, it's just like completely different because it's attempting to look like these sort of melodramas from the mid 20th century. It does not have handheld camera at all. So he's just like a very versatile filmmaker 
in many, many ways. Also uses, like, collaborates with a lot of the same people over and over again. So, like, Tony Leung has been in most of his movies, I think. And he worked with the cinematographer Christopher Doyle on six or seven films, including In the Mood for Love. And he was definitely a really significant part of the artistic process in a lot of those movies in the 90s. My understanding is that Christopher Doyle is an, not a good person. We don't need to get into details. I mean, details. he stopped working on this film halfway through the film, but that may partly be because the film took 15 the, months to... <laughs> yeah, that was not related to things I've heard about Christopher Doyle, and they have has since had a falling out, I think. But in this case, it was literally that this movie, as you say, took 15 months, and he had another job, and he was like, I have to leave. <laughs> like, this has gone on for too long. Which brings us to Hong Kar Wai's working methods, which are legendary. I mean, I think that the key detail that really illustrates how much editing and continual filming happened with this movie is the actual film itself primarily takes place over the course of like one year with little parts that happen a bit later and they actually filmed it over basically like a decade's worth of historical period in terms of the actual stuff they filmed and when you think about kind of the amount of um, visual evolution that would have to take place over that, they had to like bin so many costumes and sets and stuff. Like Morgan was saying, like he works a lot with the same people. One of those people is William Chang, who is um, the art director and costume designer on this film and also several of his other films. And he and Wong Kar Wai were basically co-designing the film, the, the the kind of visual style of the film. And when you kind of read about this, it reminded me quite a lot of um, Alfonso Cuaron with Roma, because they're both drawing so much from their childhood that they have such a precise idea of what they want. So he was like, I need all of these streets to look precisely the way that Hong Kong did in the 1960s. But it's like, well, you can't do that because that's not what Hong Kong looked like in 1999. So like, they filmed some stuff in Bangkok. They were like redressing streets so they had the right laundry hanging up from the windows and stuff. But of course, they were also doing that like through the 60s up to the 70s, which was like a very different political and economic situation for Hong Kong. And then they just binned a lot of that footage. Yeah, so if you go... On the Criterion channel now, all of the extras from the DVD are up on the streaming service for this movie, which is very cool. And one of them is like a 50-minute kind of documentary thing with clips from interviews, mostly from Cannes, where this movie played, and then like tons of footage from shooting the movie, tons of footage from the movie that was not used, and then some clips from the movie itself. And the footage from the movie that is in that documentary that didn't make the final cut, it's it's a different film. Like, it is not <laughs> the same. And, like, almost slapsticky humor, a lot of it. Like, a lot of, clearly everything that they shot that was funny, he was like, well, I'm not putting this in the movie. Well, also, it's like, when you look at, like, the initial plans for it, it kind of seemed like his initial plan was for it to be a lot hornier than it actually is. Yes. Um, Tony Lung said that initially it was, I believe the exact quote, if I'm remembering correctly in, in here, he said that it was meant to be really erotic and playful at the beginning. <laughs> and there's footage of him and Maggie Chung just like fooling around and seeming to have a great time like flirting over their noodles. And 
that is so not what the movie is like at all. It's like this very like aloof people sort of gently passing by as ships in the night being very tragic and graceful. <laughs> right. And they shot a dancing scene, which like footage of that goes around Twitter periodically. I'm sure some of you have seen it, but there a lot of it is in this little documentary and it is so delightful to watch the two of them dancing because they're both like the most beautiful people in the world and they're so charming (laughs) but it you can't sort of wrap your mind around that being in in the mood for love like it does (laughs) it does not make any sense in the context of the movie and um when I first saw this film, I saw it at the Museum of Modern Art, and there was a big talk with Wong Kar Wai, and I had never seen a movie of his, and I was like, I feel slightly guilty taking one of these tickets, but like, I want to go to this talk because it's Wong Kar Wai, and like, I watched Chunking Express, and then I went and saw this movie, and went and then went to this talk, and like, the first thing they asked him was about, like, his working methods. And then, like, he and everyone in the audience just start, like, chuckling knowingly. And I was like, I'm missing something. But it's, he's clearly, like, this is, he's just famous for this now, just taking forever. And I don't know what the original script for this movie looked like, or if there even was, like, a screenplay that laid out the whole thing. But he was very, sort of, candidly self-aware about the fact that like he just needs to kind of change his mind and they just kind of go along and figure it out and I think they only stopped shooting because they literally ran out of money and the financiers must have been like we're like this is over now like you need to stop this like it's gone on for too long and um there was a Another very funny clip in this little documentary of Tony Leung saying about Maggie Chung, who, as I was mentioning before, worked with Wong Kar Wai on the first couple movies he made, but had not worked with him in a while. So I assume that in those early movies, he has to have been more regimented in his planning because he was a sort of beginning filmmaker, right? And Tony Leung was like, yeah, Maggie hadn't worked with Kar Wai in a while, and... um, It was kind of difficult at the beginning because she really wanted to know where the character was going and that's not going to happen. So like, you just have to go with the flow and, you know, it works out and it's fine. And I was like, oh my God, this just sounds so stressful to me. Like I would not be able to handle this at all. And what's so funny is like, I saw this man give this talk and like you see footage of him on set and everything. And he's like so chill and so cool he wears sunglasses all the time (laughs) he seems like he would be great to like hang out with but oh my god it must be i cannot imagine it must be so maddening and they were all being very diplomatic about it and like clearly tony lung has worked with him a million times and like they're all devoted to him but there definitely seems like it it got to a point where it was a little bit well, it was Much. like with this film, it was one of these things where they want to show it at the Cannes Film Festival and the Cannes Film Festival director sort of calls up Wong Kar Wai and is like, look, can I help you finish the film? <laughs> can I come round to your house and maybe edit it for you? <laughs> can you give us anything? <laughs> yeah, and I think he, if I'm remembering correctly, he said at this talk that like the ending changed like many, many times, which obviously we haven't even really gotten into the plot yet, but like 
this movie has a bit of a Return of the King issue where it ends like 15 times. And I remember thinking watching it like, oh yeah, you can tell. Because he just was like, well, I don't know how to do this. Like, I don't know. I don't want it to end. And so he just puts in all the endings and they're just all in there. I mean, the stories about his kind of editing experience kind of remind me a bit about like Terrence Malick, where you'll find out that he's filmed like a seven hour movie and then some massively famous actor has been completely removed from the final cut. (laughs) What's so fascinating about this though, is that like, I also don't understand how Malick does that because he obviously makes these great movies out of this process of just having like hundreds of hours of footage. Some of his movies recently have not been his best, but you know, The Thin Red Line, which is my favorite, is that's the story you're referring to, is Adrian Brody getting to Cannes and no one had told him that he was no longer the main <laughs> character of The Thin Red Line, which I love Terrence Malick, but that's that's not good. But those movies are so like abstract in a way, and they're moving more by like emotion than plot that it makes a kind of sense that you could just have a ton of footage and be like okay well we're just gonna get rid of that with this it's like he's writing a novel and it's like with a novel yes. you're you can rewrite and it's like by any normal filmmaking standards that's like a completely insane way to work because for a lot of filmmakers you're like i'm gonna storyboard every single scene before we get to the get to the camera and with him he's like well you know if it's not working for me i'll just change the entire theme of the film <laughs> And the finished product is so highly controlled and feels like it was totally planned out from the beginning. Again, with the exception of the last 15 minutes or so, which like, I don't think they're bad. And the very end is obviously, for people who've seen the movie, like very beautiful. But I do think you get a little bit of a sense of like, he's just kind of shoving a bunch of stuff in right at the end of the movie. But for the most part, the film feels like so unbelievably like carefully constructed and well paced and controlled you would never imagine that it had been made in the way that it apparently was which like I you know kudos to him I, I couldn't do it but uh why don't we move in to the actual content of the movie then because Part of what is so compelling about it, I think, is that sense of watching something that feels so sort of carefully constructed and controlled because the emotions underneath the surface are so big. Yeah. But sort of the way it's told is not like that, which is really interesting to me. And it's a really fantastic example of a film that has a very kind of authentic sense of place and time. Like you're very immersed in this real world and it's this kind of, you know, this quite cramped apartment building where there's just people everywhere and you know what everyone's eating and there's really distinctive clothing choices and props and everything but it's also a really heavily stylized movie because it's all about memory and nostalgia and there's all these kind of amazing color choices the colors are so incredible and it is it almost entirely takes place at night if not completely entirely like i don't think there's sunlight with the exception of a couple scenes at the end like it basically is all in the nighttime or they're inside apartments or you know offices and you can't see the sun but the lighting is really really bright and you never feel like you're being sort of like you're like lost in the darkness of the image at contrast to many current hollywood movies where you're just like i cannot see anything what's going on which i wish they would stop and the visual reference that i was thinking about the most was douglas sirk 
who is not a filmmaker I am actually that familiar with either. I think I've only seen one Cirque movie, along with Todd Haynes's Douglas Cirque pastiche. So it's like I've seen two. But <laughs> his style is very recognizable. If you know, you know anything about American cinema, he did these melodramas, these like women's melodramas in the 50s that have these unbelievably bright technicolor, you know, colors all over the production and the costumes and everything. And looking at this, I was like, I'm sure that there are plenty of references to like Asian cinema that I'm not picking up on because that's not an area that I know nearly as much about as Hollywood cinema. But I feel like the Cirque thing has to be on purpose because it is so, it looks so much like those movies in a way that I thought was really interesting because it also is like the plot is quite similar to those like Hollywood melodramas of the 30s and 50s where, I mean, like, you know, the husband and wife are having an affair and then, you know, the other two also start having this relationship and like it's not an impossible scenario but it's kind of you know heightened and absurd but then what he does with that is completely different from those references right like the movie doesn't feel like a Cirque movie yeah I mean it simultaneously feels extremely kind of nostalgic and rooted in the 1960s and the 1950s as well, because there's a lot of stuff that kind of carries over. And also it doesn't remotely feel stylistically like a film made in the 1960s. Right. Yeah. And I think it's a, I think part of what the genius of the movie is, is that he manages to do both those things at once. Clearly he is looking at, you know, the visual culture of that period. You know, the production design and the costumes are so meticulously reconstructed. We will have to talk at great length about the costumes because the dresses are beyond belief. But you were saying about sort of the recreation of the space feels so particular, melded to this sort of like technicolor brightness that's not real because it's sort of meant to evoke, you know, like magazines from that era or like the memory of that era. But the tone of the movie is so kind of naturalistic and the scenes are mostly pretty short and they cut pretty quickly to the next thing. And he doesn't give you any sign that like a scene is going to end or like there are no establishing shots and there's no signification that time has passed. And sometimes it's quite a long time. You get the sense. If like a year has passed, it'll, there'll be a card saying it's the next year. But the only t- thing that is this that gives you a clue that time has passed, that you're not in the same scene anymore, often is her dress is different. And so you kind of have to do a little bit of work to be keeping up with what's going on because so much of what he's doing as a storyteller is so subtle, which is completely, again, at odds with the sort of like big melodramatic mode that he's also referencing. And it's just so much more emotionally sort of sincere than those earlier films, which, like, I'm not trying to denigrate, you know, melodrama either. I think they could be really interesting, too, but he's obviously trying to do something different. Yeah, well, it's kind of like the the narrative structure sort of uh, mirrors just kind of the central theme of the movie, which is that these characters are never kind of completely touching and reaching each other at the correct point in their lives. So it's like the story, instead of having this really clear trajectory that follows a very familiar sort of structure it's kind of like a stone skipping across the water and you kind of have to just like be there at the right time to figure out what's happening, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Well, it's all subtext 
Which, like, Cirque's movies are like that, too. It's just that the, like, what's externally happening is also really big. And he uses that, I think, to kind of mask the more interesting stuff that's going on beneath the surface, which Wong Kar Wai's not bothered with, right? Because he doesn't have any, like... <laughs> there's no, like, weird cultural pressure kind of pushing on him to, like, hide anything. It's that this is the best way to tell the story about these people because they are so emotionally repressed and kind of can't connect to each other correctly. I mean, I think what the movie is doing with marriage and gender stuff from this period is obviously just great and really affecting. I'm obviously not an expert on specifically like gender relations in Hong Kong in the 1960s, but I think you could get a lot from just watching this movie of kind of what the deal was. And it's not so dissimilar to America at the time either. It was worse, basically. <laughs> worse than now. And one of the things I found interesting in that documentary was that the actress who plays the um, the landlady, Maggie Chung's landlady. I think that's the singer, older, Rebecca Pan, who is like a pop star. I would believe you. She was saying... She's obviously older and so was alive in this period. And she was saying, like, somehow she was like, women were just different back then. Like, there was just a different kind of thing. And that the sort of traditional Chinese culture, which they're giving this interview in 2000, this is obviously now 20 years ago, but like, at that point, even had was obviously changed a lot already. But like, in the 60s, the culture really was that you were not supposed to express your emotions, right? And you can tell that it would be a massive scandal if it was found out that an affair was going on. And like, the main characters can't even like be in their apartments together, because they're married to other people. So that would be a huge scandal. And there's a great scene where like, she's over his apartment. And all the sort of like, older people who are the like landlord and their friends or landlady and their friends come over to do a mahjong game and it goes on for like a day and a half and they're like stuck in his room hiding because you know that would if she can't be seen which i did wonder how she was peeing but you know the movies don't have to explain everything but i just think that maggie chung character and like the combination of everything about the way the character is presented in the movie and then the performance too you get so much of a sense of a woman who is really constricted by the social mores of her time, which like she has internalized herself, right? Like it's not like she's some revolutionary figure who wants to like crush the system. Like she clearly buys into all of this, but also is really unhappy and is kind of just like a normal person who's just going about her life and doesn't want to be miserable, but doesn't really know how to do anything else about it. And similarly, he's kind of just like a normal guy and they wind up having this romance. And I think the fact that both of them seem so mundane in a way is what I like so much about the movie. Yeah, a rare example of like a film where the protagonists are plausibly normal while also being the most beautiful people on the planet, (laughs) which is something that many films fail to combine those two elements. Well, that's obviously part of the... The vintage romance vibes. Yes, right? Is that like, okay, so we've cast these two people who are, again, like the most supernaturally beautiful people you will ever see in your life in this movie. But we're going to have them play, you know, 
every man and every woman. And they're surrounded by actual every man and every woman people, which kind of yeah. makes it doubly interesting because you've got this kind of romance which is very delicate and chaste and slow moving. And Maggie Chung's character, Mrs. Chan, is so kind of self-contained and graceful and beautiful. And then you kind of see the rest of their lives and it's like, okay, everyone else around you is like actually normal because everyone kind of looks normal and is like being rude and raucous and like just having like a regular apartment life. And then it's like, oh, well, you're stuck here and you've got to enact this like epic tragedy in this overcrowded apartment building. (laughs) Well, I think also the older people they're living either with or around are these kind of like middle-aged married people who are just who are chill. Kind, who they're get, chill. Like, they're just, you know, they're hanging out, playing mahjong, whatever. And she's married to this guy who travels a lot for work, and you never see him. You see Tony Lung's wife from, like, sort of from the back in a few sequences. She's not, like, a character who's really present in the movie, but you never see the husband. And she's just this totally solitary figure who's clearly very shy. Like they keep inviting her to have dinner with them. And she's like, no, no, I'm going to go to the movies. She goes to the movies a lot. And obviously the fact that she's so beautiful and is wearing these unbelievable dresses is part of the movie romance of the whole thing. But it feels to me also like part of the defense mechanism in a way. I mean, not that... But it's like the fact she, that like looks, there's but... no there's no kind of actual requirement for her to look unbelievably perfect every day yes. and to like make all of her life into this sort of internal performance. But it is definitely kind of like armor. Yeah, and the fact that she's wearing those traditional Chinese gowns—it's a Chung Sam, yeah, yeah—that are so constrictive. And she, I, Maggie Chung was saying that. She, initially she found it really hard to wear them all the time. And she'd done a, another movie where she had worn, you know, outfits like that, but that she said it's just like very uncomfortable. And which obviously because they're so tight and the collars are really long, but that actually shooting for as long as they did wind up being really helpful because the first several months she was just like, ugh, like I'm not acting naturally. And then eventually your, your, what I your torso figures out how to, yeah. how to perform. <laughs> and certainly watching the movie, like it, she just feels like that's what she wears. But they do kind of have this feeling of being armor because it is this like rigid thing. Obviously also like in a very like traditionally feminine form. But I think those dresses are doing so much work in the movie. I mean, they're some of like the most iconic costumes ever because there's not that much dialogue in this film. So the vast majority of the story just takes place visually with kind of audio musical cues. And like Morgan said, a lot of the time you're only telling it's a different day because she has a different dress. And she has like 20 or 25 different dresses in this movie. I read that they made about 40, but like obviously a lot of them were edited out. (laughs) And it kind of gives this immediate like tone to different scenes. So there's some scenes where she's sort of coordinating with her scene partner and like they are coordinating or kind of clashing with the colour scheme of the scene. And she just looks absolutely stunning. And it's, there aren't, really that many movies that manage to kind of do that without it feeling unbelievably false or being in an environment where everyone else is already also dressed up like that because if you're watching like a Keira Knightley historical movie 
it's usually a situation where there's like 50 people in crinolines. Where in this, in this movie, it's like you have everyone's wearing period costume, but she is this kind of shining jewel in the middle of it. And it's just incredible work. And in general, like co- like costumes and clothes are clearly important to the story because you've got these kind of two little subplots to do with like her husband's tie and Tony Leung's character's like wife gets this bag or something. So it's like they're really kind of concerned with fashion. You can kind of think about it in terms of like what's being like imported into Hong Kong at this point and there being like lots of commerce happening and kind of evolution in fashion really rapidly. I mean, you say that like the Chupao or the Chung Sam is traditional, which it is. It's like very traditional clothing, but it's like she's wearing the like trendy 1960s version. Because if you go back like 30 years ago, they're like so baggy by comparison. And obviously if you see one like now, it's more in the zone of what Maggie Chung's wearing in this movie. Like nowadays, I've not seen any that have like collars that are that high and rigid, which like is very, very cool style. But like, if you look at kind of pictures in the 20s and 30s, they're more in line with the fashions you're seeing coming out of the West, where it's the same sort of like baggy sort of rectangular silhouette. Yeah. What you're saying with the clothes kind of signifying the sense of sort of commerce and modernism, I think is definitely true, particularly because they're all crammed into these little apartments, which are perfectly nice apartments, but there are a lot of people in them because there were a lot of people in Hong Kong at this time, because so many people had come from China. And the outside world is kind of expressing itself in subtle ways in the movie. Like her husband keeps traveling to Japan, and that's where the purse is coming from that he gives to both his mistress and his wife, which is the plot point. Um, And there are just like certain kind of Western design touches that pop up. And one of the things that I found really interesting about the movie, which like I was trying to pay attention to like, what is this doing on like a political level? Obviously it's not like a political film, but I was like, well, he has to be saying something. And obviously the situation in Hong Kong right now is so horrible that like that was really on my mind while I was watching this. And um, one of the things I find really moving about this movie is that it's simultaneously so nostalgic for this period of time that, you know, he was when he was a child. And in the interviews I was watching, they're all talking about how, like, you know, back then everyone knew each other, like your neighbors, you would know all your neighbors, people would just come over all the time, which you see happening in this movie. And like, that was so great. But the main characters aren't really having that experience, right? Like, they feel very isolated. Yeah, I mean, it's a classic example of like, when you move to a big city from somewhere else and then you're just like completely alone in a, cl- in a crowd. Yeah. And by the end of the film, most of the characters have left Hong Kong. And spoiler alert, we're going to, I'm going to say the result for how the movie resolves. Like this romance does not work out, right? Like it's clear that this is doomed from the beginning. And so I feel like there is this sense of Hong Kong in the movie as kind of a like liminal transitional space, which it was for so many people who wound up going from there to the UK, which obviously it was a colony at this point. Um, But they also, you know, went to America or somewhere else. And the sort of balance between the obvious love that the people making the movie have for this place and for trying to sort of 
recreate and preserve the history of this place, which also is like weirdly transient because people just keep leaving, you know, which is still happening in Hong Kong. It's like this strange tragedy of I mean, the island, what right? you're kind of saying about the the theme of liminal spaces, which is super prevalent throughout the film. I mean, the hotel room they go to is numbered 2046, and that's the title of the next film. And that's a reference to the fact that, like, Hong Kong's political treaty extends to 2046 slash 2047. And no one's precisely clear on an international politics level what's going to happen in 2046 slash 2047. I'm sure by that point things will have changed drastically considering what's going on now, but um, it's like that number is obviously going to be a lot more obvious in the minds of Chinese viewers watching this film. Yes. You know, and I, again, I don't think that's like the main thing he's trying to convey in this movie, but I do think it's really... It's like a huge part of the sort of subtext of the film and adds a lot to this, to the romance, which is the sort of primary text of, of the movie, right? This sense of like, it just can't work. Like it just, it just can't work. It's not going to happen. And there's no reason why it can't, which, but like, there's just it just is it's like you just possible. need to leave your spices <laughs> right and he is obviously willing to do that it becomes clear the further along you get and it certainly seems by the end of the movie as though he has done like he does not seem buried by the end of the film although it, i don't think it's like textually stated but she just like is too sort of tied to these more traditional ideas of like what is and is not permittable, right? But I like that the movie has this, it is a tragedy, but it's not a tragedy because like some external, I mean, it is the external force of society. It's not like someone is standing in between them saying like this can't happen. They're kind of doing it to themselves, which is sadder, I think. We also haven't mentioned that like one of the, things this movie does too is have them basically play act all of these scenes where like one of them will pretend to be the other person's spouse yeah yeah the way they the way they deal with their uh joint philandering spouses is to meet in secret and instead of just having an actual affair they're kind of having these in-depth discussions about like what they might be doing and at the same time it's kind of they're they're very into storytelling and it becomes this sort of collaboration because Tony Lung's character is a writer and he's writing this sort of schlocky martial arts story (laughs) and she becomes his kind of co-writer so they're simultaneously kind of collaborating on that and also having these conversations about like oh what do you think our spouses would be doing in this situation to the point where they're like renting a hotel room to reenact this without like completely reenacting it yeah I mean, obviously, just great concept. You know, good job, everyone. But it adds so much to the idea of this as a melodrama and a movie that's kind of commenting on melodrama as a form because they are literally playing out scenes within the movie where they're kind of playing around with that concept too. The scenes in the film that are the most emotionally big, not in terms of like their effect on you as a viewer, but like when they're physically expressing the most kind of 
emotion are when they're pretending to sort of be other people. And the biggest real emotions are when they're kind of having these strange clipped conversations (laughs) where they're like sort of acknowledging how they feel about each other. But it's all just totally like, you know, metatextual commentary on movies. Well, it's also like the way the music works because famously this film has like an absolutely stunning soundtrack, most of which is not kind of written for the film. Um, So the kind of the most famous piece of music from this is this kind of string pizzicato waltz, which is, uh, it was it was written for a different film. It's for this movie called Yumeji, which is a Japanese indie film that came out in 1991. And that piece of music, Yumeji's theme, is played like 10 times in this movie. And it doesn't really play out in its entirety. It kind of fades in and out. So you have towards the beginning, it's like, fading quite fast so you're only getting these little drops of these periods together where the characters are kind of sharing a scene or the characters are just have just missed each other and that's when the music kind of comes in and then as the film kind of goes on you get that music kind of happening more there's also like a lot of music in this film which is diegetic where it's like the the music is within the narrative of the film itself and it's a really interesting kind of variety like a mix of different genres that kind of illustrate what people would have been listening to just casually on the radio in 1960s Hong Kong. And I think that draws like a lot from Wong Kar Wai's own memories. But like, it's it's such a great kind of playlist to like look at because like I mentioned earlier, the um the landlady is played by Rebecca Pan, who is this uh, Shanghai Hong Kong singer from that period. So she's got this wee cameo and also some of her music is on the soundtrack. And there's also music by Nat King Cole, but it's Nat King Cole's Latin album. He did not speak Spanish, which you can tell from these songs, because it's like <laughs> this very sort of like American English accent pronunciation of Spanish. But that would have been nightclub music in Hong Kong at that point, because in the late 50s, kind of early 60s, there was this massive craze for Latin music and like fake Latin music recorded by American musicians who go to Cuba and then record an album with the local band and then like leave. <laughs> and that made its way to Hong Kong. So you've got that. And there's also kind of early recordings of kind of traditional Chinese operas in different languages recorded in like 1915 kind of operas. And it's like, this is just such a great mix of music that kind of gives you an idea of what the atmosphere of the city is like and the kind of different historical periods and what's being listened to on a casual basis. And then you also have the main theme, which is just like pure kind of pure melodrama romance. Yeah. I think the music in this movie is so effective bold statement um, <laughs> yeah the, the fact that but the fact that it basically just uses that one piece of string music that you were referring to from the japanese movie it just uses that over and over again and that's like the theme for this movie even if it was originally written for something else the way the music is used within the movie otherwise like that you were just describing the diegetic music gives so much texture but it doesn't feel like it's commenting on the movie in the same way as that one piece of music that gets used repetitively does and it's so intense when that kicks in and it's often when they're going to go get noodles until you'll have like a slow motion shot of her like walking with her little noodle bowl and then right at the very very end of the movie there's a different piece of orchestral music that is non-diegetic that plays over like the last sequence. Which I think was composed for the film. 
yes, you, you could just tell, like, I wouldn't have been able to know that for sure, but it feels so different and is so much more kind of directly emotional. I remember when I was, I did a, like, student program at the Telluride Film Festival, like, over a decade ago now, and um, one of the movies we watched was this film, A Prophet, by Jacques Odiard, which is a great movie. I highly recommend it. But one of the interesting things about that movie is that it combines like a very kind of traditional like emotional orchestral score with a ton of rap music which i thought was very interesting and we did um seminars with the directors of some of these movies afterwards and i asked him about the decision to do this and he said that the rap music told the story of the plot and the orchestral score told the story of the like feelings of the main character Love and that. i was like that's so amazing so good but I feel like there's something similar going on, not in as like, you know, programmatic a way as those two things, but the certain parts of like the feeling of this movie will come out in some of the orchestral bits yeah. and then other parts of what the movie's doing come out in different ways. Yeah, I mean, well, it's kind of like music. the music that is on the radio is the world building. And I think yes. that kind of another part of that that's really good is the it's definitely Wonka Y is like thinking more consciously about what what would it actually be listened to because in the vast yeah. majority of cases if you're watching a movie that's set kind of in the mid to late 20th century whether it's an indie film or like a big blockbuster if you're looking at these kind of films they will always just pick something really really obvious and it'll be like very kind of you know Quentin Tarantino is like the most obvious choice but it's like like retro nostalgic pop music choices and it's like, most people are not listening to like the Guardians of the Galaxy playlist of 1987. There is a variety of cultural references in your life. And that's also kind of the same for costume design, where it's like a lot of designers kind of get bogged down in making sure everything looks precisely like it would come from a specific year. And it's like, that's not how society works. <laughs> yes. I think the sort of nostalgia memory thing is so interesting because I feel like that can also go wrong, <laughs> you know? Like, it, it can just turn into sort of gloopy crap, depending on the filmmaker. And in this case, that obviously is not what happened. The other person I was thinking of a lot, not while I was watching the movie so much, because I didn't realize the extent to which it was sort of coming from this nostalgic place, but when I was reading about it and watching these interviews, was um, the author, Colm Tobin, whom I love, who wrote this novel, Brooklyn, which got turned into a movie that got a bunch of Oscar nominations. And it takes place in both in Brooklyn, but also in the town where he grew up, kind of at the period where he was also a little kid. So like the same kind of thing. And I'm really interested in this process of like, not necessarily making a piece of art about like your personal childhood, or like adolescence, but about adults who would have gone through something when you were a little Which kid. Which is also Roma. Yes. I think that movie is incredible, obviously, but that strikes me as more of a, like, that is autobiographical in a way. Yeah. Because it is about someone he knew. I mean, I think that movie is an incredible act of, like, empathy to decide to go at it from that angle. But Brooklyn is more about, like, I remember in interviews he said that there were all these women who were leaving from New York from his town and, like, people would talk about them or he would sort of see them coming around to talk before they left and that he always thought about that. And in this case, there's a similar kind of like, obviously this place was so lodged in his mind 
and the people, maybe not the main characters, but like the other figures in the movie feel like they're coming from a very real place. But this desire to then tell a kind of different story, but that's still kind of coming from that place of like really deep emotion that's not completely grounded in reality either, I just think is really interesting. And I think is really just like mesmerizing in this movie because you do get that sense of nostalgia, but it's not quite poisoned by personal experience, which I think can sometimes happen. Yeah. Instead, he's like, well, what about these women who are like miserable, you know? I mean, the filmmaker I most closely kind of associate with Wong Kar Wai and this film specifically is Barry Jenkins. And like a few months ago, I I was making a YouTube video that was kind of about if Beale Street could talk and the kind of the use of colour in that film. And it was like, of course, this is like clearly a really big influence to do with like the way Barry Jenkins uses these extremely bright kind of flashes of colour and like warm colour palette in loads of night scenes and the costumes and like the fabric choices. It's just like absolutely gorgeous to look at. And that film is also kind of all about romance and memory and nostalgia, but like not really nostalgia in a positive way. <laughs> and like Moonlight as well, I think he's spoken quite a lot about Wong Kar Wai being kind of an influence on that film, which is another one of these sort of, you know, living your life slash romance relationship movies that takes place over kind of multiple periods of someone's life. Yeah, I mean, he's talked about that influence a lot for sure. To me, the influence seems clearer in Moonlight, although I know he talked about it with If Beale Street Could Talk too. But I also just like Moonlight a lot more than If Beale Street Could I Talk. Think, so. I think Moonlight is a better movie, but I love both of them. <laughs> yeah. I mean, to cap off our like list of references that this movie makes, I mean, this movie is so influential. It yeah, I mean, it's like so to say like things. one filmmaker is influenced by this is ridiculous because this movie came out twenty years ago and everyone who makes films has seen it. So <laughs> yeah, but the other thing that I was thinking about a lot watching this was like this movie had a huge visual impact on Mad Men. Massive, <laughs> Mad Men. massive. <laughs> well, I guess it's set in the sixties. <laughs> it is. Oh, trust me, Mad Men is very visually like modeled on film from that time mm-hmm. like it is self-consciously trying to look like movies from that period but obviously in many ways the design is different because New York and Hong Kong had different clothes and interior design stuff going on at that in that era but in other ways they stuff was bleeding over and I guarantee you the directors of that show had like stills up from this movie on the wall the production office when they were doing like the pilot of Bad Men which was funny to me because I'm obviously more familiar with that show than this. So this came out first, but I was kind of like reversing it in my head because I was like, oh, that's like this in Mad Men. And I was like, no, no, that's not how it works. But um, it's kind of incredible to think how much a single piece of art can then just like bleed out into yeah, like worldwide culture, you know? Great movie. I do think the end is a little bit, just goes on a little bit. But the last sequence, obviously, classic. Gorgeous. Gorgeous. <laughs> I also like watched the trailer and the trailer includes it, but I was also like, I don't think this counts as a spoiler because it's just like so abstract. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I meant to watch the rest of the Wong Kar Wai movies for ages and I really want to do that now, but I also was like, I need to catch up with all the other Tony Lung and Maggie Chung movies. And the last thing I'll say about the little documentary is like, <laughs> she seems like an incredibly deep person. Just really well, well, she profound. was like the hugest actor in like the world 
and then was just like, I'm retiring. Well, she literally says she was like, you know, it seems like 15 months seems like a long time to spend on something. But I realized, like, it's actually fine because if you make a movie, it's around forever. And so it's better to spend 15 months on something and have it be, like, really good than to just make a bunch of movies. And she was like, I don't care about money because I would rather make, a, like, basically, like, a lasting masterpiece of art, right? And so watching that, I was like, oh, it completely makes sense that she's quit because she obviously did what she came to do and now is done. And Tony Lung seems like a huge ham. <laughs> He's chill. He's chill. Away. The last thing I saw him in was just, like, one of these, like, historical epics with people, like, you know, 25-minute-long fight scenes. <laughs> <laughs> and he's going to be in a Marvel film, so, you know, he's a he chill guy. very nice. He was totally, like, in the footage from the press tour and stuff, he was, like, majorly hamming for the camera. And I feel like he, with these couple of Wong Kar Wai movies he made in the 90s, my sense is, like, he artistically peaked and he knows it. And is like, not that he couldn't do incredible acting, obviously, but I feel like he probably feels some sense of accomplishment of, like, I was in In the Mood for Love, so I can do whatever the fuck I want now because it literally and does he's not right. matter. And like, he's right. He's right. Yep. So, very satisfying. Great movie. Yeah, thanks to Caitlin for requesting it. Yeah, this was really a pleasure. And next week, we will be watching another period piece. One of my personal favorite films of all time. The 2011 Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy by Thomas Alfredson. I mean, it's it's one of the best films ever I've seen in my life. Yes. Like, critics definitely liked it, but it wasn't, like, the toast of the town. And I think a lot of people are very emotionally attached to the miniseries uh, that came out in the 70s or 80s. Yeah. Which I'm sure is great. I've never seen it because I watched this movie one million times and was like, well, I can't taint this. Yeah, now. I mean, I've, I've only seen kind of, like, very small snippets of the miniseries, but I think the issue with the miniseries is it's, like, it obviously has, like, a fantastic cast. It sounds like it's a really, really good adaptation. But, like, artistically, like, a 40-year-old British, especially British TV miniseries, is just not going to be very interesting. Whereas this film is artistically definitely interesting. (laughs) Yes. And I think a masterpiece of book-to-screen Yes. It's it's one of the best I've ever seen, for sure. Yeah. Because I'm reading the book now. I'm posting little book club posts on our Patreon if you want to read them. And I love that novel, but it is very complicated. And the movie is obviously also definitely complicated, but the book gets distilled into two hours in a way that, like, I actually think it's better than the book, which is a really high compliment. So um, that will be really fun to talk about. Uh, So come back next week for that. And again, you can read my thoughts on the novel. At Patreon, I just posted a sort of media diary there too with some thoughts about some things I have been watching and reading recently. So if you want some other recommendations for stuff, you can find that on Patreon too. That is patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor and you can find me on YouTube at Behind the Scenes. And you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at mldavies. The podcast is on Twitter at OverinvestedPod. Our Tumblr is OverinvestedPodcast. And our website is OverinvestedPodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.